a podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Buddy, happy Thursday morning. It's the Tropical MBA Podcast. Today, we're going to talk sourcing in China, the Canton Fair, the expat experience in China. And so there's only one guy to go to. It's Matt Kowalik from HighCappen.com. Yeah, to come back down from Shenzhen and set Dan straight about uh, China. There's too much <laughs> smack talk on this podcast about how bad it is. So, so you've definitely been our go-to guy over the years. Anybody who sends me an email, I always send them your way and you've been super helpful. You're going to post a lot of support documents and stuff that we can reference on this post, tropicalmba.com slash Canton. We just finished the interview. I really enjoyed having a talk. I've never been to the fair, so you gave me kind of like an inside look about what it feels like to go there, what the opportunities are, and you also gave us sort of a broader look into your life in China and what you see as the entrepreneurial opportunities there. The country's such a huge part of the world now and such a huge economic behemoth that people have so many kind of preconceived notions about it and how difficult it is. I think sometimes you're right and sometimes you're not, but it's an important place to know and get some knowledge about. Well, if you're curious about China or heading to the camp, on fair. I do hope you give a listen and I think you'll get a lot out of this one. Again, you can ask Matt questions or give us your feedback on this episode at tropicalmba.com slash canton. So I want to start off by if you could set the scene of the Canton Fair for me, because I know you've been a bunch of times. I've never gone and I know that entrepreneurs in our community, they go on like annual pilgrimages to this place. They see it as not only an opportunity to see friends and things, but as like a business opportunity. Like I'm going to go there and find new products or I'm going to improve my current ones. So can you set the scene? What is the Canton Fair and why do entrepreneurs see it as an opportunity? Well, I think the Canton Fair, you know, it kind of has this legendary status behind it. It's a, it's one of the oldest trade shows in the world right now. I think they've been doing this thing, you know, since the very beginning, the opening of China really. And they used to call Guangzhou Canton. They've been having this trade show and it used to be the only way you could source products from China, right? You weren't allowed to go to the factory in Jiangmen or Northern China. As a foreigner, you're only permitted to go to this ah. one trade show in, in Guangzhou and every factory from China would send some a representative there to show you what their community was manufacturing. And this kind of goes back to the way that Chinese communism was organized, right? Everybody in one village made one kind of product and they tried to scale it because they had so many people trying to keep everybody employed. So these villages areas tend to focus in on one type of product, which is kind of the way that, that manufacturing is set up in China today. So what, now what's the modern show? Like you were saying, the largest, millions of yeah, people. it's the largest on the planet. I mean, it's, it's incredibly huge. I forget how many football fields worth of products they always say every year, three or four or five or whatever, but they have three full phases of it, full of different products thousands and thousands of suppliers from the smallest itty bitty tiny shack suppliers to some of the largest ones in the, in the world that make the components for iPhones and everything that we use. So can you describe Guangzhou briefly? Guangzhou is a very old Chinese city. It's about uh, a little older than 2000 years. I think it's, it's always been one of the, uh, 
the biggest settlements. They always talk about the cities in the south of kind of having one's foot out of China. The favorite saying of the Cantonese in the south is the emperor is far away and the mountains are high, which means the guys, <laughs> the bosses in Beijing can't really see everything that's going on here. They got their own little port, Macau. 18, 18 million people, yeah. 18 million is one, I think so. It's one of the biggest, it's the biggest city in the in Guangdong province. It's very old. It's been a, a trading city forever. The Portuguese originally settled in Macau and did all their trading from there and they were allowed to go into Guangzhou and, and meet with manufacturer people who were making things hundreds of years ago. So. so what from a business perspective is distinct about this trade show? Why not go to one in Hong Kong or in Beijing or whatever? The ones in Hong Kong and Beijing tend to be a little more polished. The suppliers there are spending a lot more money on advertising and marketing and things like this. And they may be more professional, but the prices also reflect that. So they're going to be a lot higher. Traditionally, the Canton Fair has been that place where you go to get the quote unquote, the China price, the factory direct price, right? Where you're really feeling like you're trying to connect directly to an actual manufacturer. So you can be taking that product, moving it from their factory to wherever you're taking it and, and not really have somebody in the middle. So let's start from square one. China's an intimidating place. You've lived in Shenzhen for 10 years now. 10 years. I was listening back. You were on this podcast three years ago, wow. which means that we're getting Long old. Long time, yes. And you ended, we said you were there for seven years, so you're yeah. still there. China's an intimidating place. So let's start by, you know, what are some beginner tips for traveling to the fair? I think there's a lot of, you know, you need to do a lot of prep work before, and it's not the easiest place to get a visa. You can get a visa in Hong Kong. It takes a couple of days at least. You have to go to the Chinese embassy, or you can find a travel service agency in Hong Kong or, yeah. or wherever you are that can get it done. It takes a couple of days. It's more and more becoming more and more difficult. I hear more and more people getting denied visas. So it's something that you should kind of plan for in advance. Getting to Guangzhou, if you're not flying directly into Guangzhou, if you're going through Hong Kong, it's a bit of a challenge as well. Not a ton of English is spoken in Shenzhen or Guangzhou. More in Guangzhou than Shenzhen. It can be difficult to kind of physically get there. At the time of the Canton Fair, the population of, of Guangzhou swells up and travel getting around is, is really bad. It's an old city, so it's not very well laid out for traffic like Shenzhen is. So the traffic really kind of slows to a grind during the trade show fair times. And the Canton Fair is huge, so there's different phases and different buildings the size of airport hangars. And, and <laughs> I mean, it, it's really very intimidating. But on the other hand, you can find everything. You could make a computer, a forks, or a rocket ship. You know, whatever you want to get made, if you have enough money and time, you can find somebody who will at least tell you they can make it. Well, let's talk about some pre-show strategy then. You saying pre-prep and casting a huge net is really critical. So what does that even mean though? Well, I think you want to make sure that you're taking your time and kind of evaluating a range of different suppliers, right? You're going to find some suppliers who can manufacture the product faster than others, some suppliers who can make the product for cheaper than others, and some people can make a great quality product and some who can make a cheap one. So are you getting quotes and reaching out to suppliers before you even go to the event? Sometimes I think that this is on the over preparation side, you can you can definitely do this. Pre-scout some of the suppliers. You can go to the Canton Fair's website and see a list of the suppliers. Find some suppliers that are in your product range and at least throw out an estimate. Let them know you're going to be at the fair so that when you show up and say, hey, I'm Mr. Bob Jones from Chicago. I emailed you last week. You have something to kind of break the ice. They might have something prepared for you so you can actually not spend a ton of time kind of explaining the product or whatever, but trying to meet somebody who maybe is a line manager or somebody who really 
knows that product well. And if you've done your homework and you understand what the components, the material costs are, you can use that as a way of pre-screening some of these suppliers and, and trying to cut out a low value added middleman who doesn't necessarily know the product and doesn't know what they're talking about and is pretending to represent a factory when maybe they don't or they don't work right. there. Well, that's a hypothetical. You know, let's say I want to build a portable stand-up desk okay. for digital nomads. The show is coming up in a few weeks. What should I be thinking about when I go to this show? Should I be looking for any booth with the same sort of material that is in my product? Or should I be looking for office furniture manufacturers? Or how do you approach that? Yeah, I would look for somebody who has a similar product range. This is what one of the tactics we use when we're sourcing as well, is find somebody who's in that quote-unquote industry or whatever that area of business is. Somebody who's making desks already they'll have that basic knowledge of the product and they can kind of assist you in making tweaks. A lot of the suppliers you're interacting with, they don't really have a desire to have their own brands or sell those products internationally. They're there, they know what their skill set is and their core competency is manufacturing. So they're looking to make product to move it. And everybody in China is concerned about quantity. So what you can do with that initial research is kind of putting this information out there and trying to find people who are interested in, in working on your project. You know, if you're making a thousand of these stand-up desks and you're trying to work with some giant state-owned enterprise that may have the best pricing available, but for them, they're making a hundred thousand desks a month. So a thousand puts you on the very smallest of acceptable orders. And you may find out that what the reality is, is somebody is trying to do you a favor. They feel like they're doing you a favor. So they should get some concessions down the road. Like if the quality is not great, you're going to let that slide because they're doing you a favor and hooking you up and letting you work with them. Well, tell me, walk me through this. This might be a common situation. Let's say I put my stand-up desk on Kickstarter. All right. 350 backers. I had a great result. I got a couple dollars. I'm walking the fair. How am I going to convince a furniture company to do a 350 quantity order with me? Am I going to be pointing to desks in their booth and saying, how much is that for a thousand units? Is I mean, how do these conversations go? Yeah, I think- or do you just get the cards and roll out and email them later. Both styles can be effective. If you have a good idea of what your product is, if you have a physical sample or a detailed sketch, a detailed product specification sheet that you're trying to show, you can find somebody who's going to be able to give you accurate pricing. If you have an idea of that name of that price point that you need to hit, you know, you've well researched the market, then you can go through and and actually do these basic negotiations at the trade shows. But unless you have that, I think the best idea is to get a general idea of their capabilities. What do they want as a minimum order? Because you'll get people who say our minimum is 10,000, 5,000. I get these quotes all the time. They does say, that mean anything? Sometimes it does, sometimes it does doesn't. Does their revenue figure mean anything? Like, What is the most effective heuristic for sussing out? You're trying to find the right supplier, the right fit for your project, right? So again, if you're trying to make 350 of these desks, you're talking to a behemoth that makes millions of desks a year. If there's anything that goes wrong with this or something is not easy for them, it's going to be impossible to get them to fix it. That being said, you don't want to get stuck with a guy who's making desks in his garage, you know, or something, or banging anything together with his kids. I've done that before. Right. So that's not an effective way to kind of scale this thing up or get consistency with your production or something like that. That's what everybody's looking for, right? The right price, consistent quality, you know, something that doesn't need to be messed with too much. So Regarding on-the-floor strategy, how important is it to have Chinese language skills or an interpreter? At the Hong Kong shows, not so important. At the Canton Fair, very important. And a big red flag here is not to rely on the suppliers' translators because... We see this all the time. What happens is the suppliers, English-speaking staff, they don't want to get their boss angry. They may not want to make you feel embarrassed, so they may not be conveying exactly what your meaning is to the suppliers. They're trying to get everybody to, oh, we were 
we're happy. Yes, let's move this project forward. And again, you show up to the factory or you pay a deposit and then you find out something's wrong. Well, you've already got exposure and you've already got skin in the game. You're kind of hooked and maybe stuck with a supplier that isn't the best fit. So we highly recommend finding an outside translator that can not just translate your words, but interpret your meaning because Chinese is a, is a complicated language. And so how do you do that? Is there a way that we can help the listeners find this? There's English speakers all over the trade shows when you walk up. Students, there's a couple of English-speaking websites, shenzhenparty.com. Can we link up to them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll put together a link of you know, places where you can put ads in, in English and saying, hey, I need a translator for right. the Canton Fair or whatever. And that's a cool opportunity to meet a new friend too. Yeah, right? exactly. And, who knows? and they're very excited to practice their English. So That's cool. Yeah. So your next point here about having a successful show is about staying for a month. And I just got to remind you to mention delay tactics <laughs> and karaoke and lunches. Okay. What is this all about? Right. So a lot of people do, you know, they get to China. It's intimidating. It's big. It's loud. It can be hot. The food's different. Everything's different. So a lot of people tend to kind of move things very quickly. This is a stereotype of Westerners that Chinese are very well aware of. A lot of the tactics for people who will try to get, not necessarily get a project started, but once something is going and you've already paid a deposit and something, and there's some type of problem that they're uncomfortable discussing face-to-face -face, is this delay tactic. And we call it a slow bleed where you're trying to get this problem solved. You show up to China. They have you stay in a nice hotel in Guangzhou. The factory is two hours away. So they come and pick you up in the morning. You drive to the factory. You get there. It's 1130. Oh, it's time for lunch. It's down for a long lunch. Maybe have a beer or two. Up. Oh, it's three o'clock. Sometimes they make you take shots. Right. Sometimes <laughs> they make you take shots at lunch. So they get you to the factory. Oh, the factory's closed. You can take a quick tour and then your whirlwind and they try to kind of move you out. So they're trying to not have this in-depth analysis of their technical capabilities and their capacity. They're trying to push you to saying, all right, I'm stuck. I don't have a choice Here's my money. I got to get this order started. Right. So if you come in and show up and say, hey, I'm going to be here for a month. I got plenty of time to evaluate your capacity, maybe even do a sample run. Or I'm not coming tomorrow because I'm at the other suppliers. Right. I'm not going out to karaoke again with you. Right. Exactly. So I think using those tactics, hey, time is not a super pressing thing. I'm not leaving in three days. And I am evaluating other suppliers. I think these are your best tactics to kind of avoiding even some of these things happening. And you said like the biggest mistake that people make is they don't do a physical inspection and you also mentioned some prejudices that Chinese business people have about Western business people. I admit that I like to get out of in real life and onto the email pretty quick because it's right. like, I feel like, oh, a quote is more solid than what you told me, you know, kind of thing. At least I can see the number and the price. What benefit am I going to get from just going to the factory and just chilling? Or what am I going to do at the factory? Right. Right. Not, just well, chill, not just drink hot green tea. Well, sometimes I do that. Sometimes I go to the factory and sit there and drink green tea and play good cop, bad cop with my partner or somebody he's pissed off and the other guy's trying to calm him down and keep you know you have to kind of do these things that China is a very old culture and there's a lot of this gamesmanship where you're trying to express your feelings indirectly. I hate to make stereotypes, but the Chinese are not very comfortable with that face-to-face -face confrontation. They love to find a scapegoat for somebody to blame it on. So they also have this view of the Western business person as being impatient, confrontational, argumentative, which is also you know yeah, quite often fair. true. So they know you're uncomfortable 
you know, being at the factory, using the bathroom in a hole in the ground, eating the kind of food that they may have. So they also will leverage those things to their advantage, right? So trying to make you make a quick decision or agree to some general terms without having everything specified. Sometimes it's done on purpose and sometimes it isn't. But the reality, the value that you get of going to the factory, sitting down face to face, looking at the owner, is he checking his email and smoking a cigarette while he's having this conversation with you? Or are you sitting down at his desk while he's doing something else? Or are you sitting down to tea looking face to face, having a discussion with him and really trying to begin a relationship or are you just another PO number, right? I think that the the value is is of not being a PO number. And we used to avoid this too, of only going to the factory when there's a problem, only calling the supplier when there's a problem. You mentioned like things that almost struck me as micromanagement, like that you guys are in the process at the point of bill of material and you're looking in line QC samples. So tell me how to avoid the golden sample. Right, okay, so there's the, you know, the golden sample is easy to make one piece that's perfect, it's much more difficult to make that bulk production order consistent quality on the time that's agreed to. So I think that our standard process is to inspect the materials before production starts, do an inline inspection while production is being done, and then inspect the final product before that final payment is made, right? And having all this stuff tied to each other and having this clearly explained to your supplier before you place a deposit, before you get started so that there aren't any surprises. You're trying to kind of avoid having any of these surprises because everybody wants the orders to progress smoothly. Everybody agree, everybody get paid, move on because the next reorder comes. You've already had that comfortable relationship and you can kind of move quickly on those things. A lot of the people listening to this show have probably been to Alibaba and they've surfed around the China web looking for products to potentially sell or opportunities. How is their experience going to be different if they take your advice and go spend a month in China versus if they hang back and do the Alibaba thing? Well, I think the Alibaba thing is a reasonable option for purchasing something that we call an off-the-shelf product, something that's already been made, the specifications are, are there, the supplier might already have stock of this available. You're just buying it, changing it from red to blue and putting your logo on it. That's one thing, it's okay to do it from Alibaba, it's still not the easiest thing. If you're looking to build a long-term, sustainable relationship with the supplier and have them look at you as a business partner, then that face-to-face time and looking somebody in the eyes and evaluating their facility is, is really valuable. And a lot of it is a preemptive stamping these problems out before they can even happen. If the supplier knows that you're gonna inspect the materials, they're much less likely to try to substitute something in there, right? If the supplier knows you're gonna look at the production line, they're gonna try to do a better job of making sure everything looks perfect for that because it's tied to the money. And the you, same thing. you mentioned that you know part of the reason to stay there for a month is to build relationships. Right. In China, in your view, what are relationships built on? I think we've said on the show in the past that all Chinese suppliers care about is when cash, right? That's, is yeah. that still the case or are they going to do personal favors for you because you went to karaoke with them? Yes. Yes and no. <laughs> yes. Yes. You can build that personal relationship where you're not just a PO number. You're Eric the American who's interesting and has a dog and you showed pictures to the boss and, and you become more human in that way. And I think that trying to laugh and have a drink or two and make a good memory is interesting to these things. At the end of the day, everybody's there to do business, right? And you're not going to get 20% off your production line because you guys had a good time at karaoke, but yeah. you may get a problem fixed 
because there was some type of misinterpretation because you do have a good relationship where otherwise you wouldn't. We have great suppliers. We have great relationships with. We buy presents for their kids when we meet them. And it's not so much of this, here's a quote unquote money for your family or whatever, where it's just a glossed over bribe. But to have a, a real relationship with the supplier, with his family, ask about his kids. What are they doing? The people are people, right? Everybody's very proud of what they're doing. They're proud of their children. They're proud of where they're going. And now we're at that point where it's not like in the early 90s where all these suppliers are hungry for every order and the cash is just flowing and people are getting money from banks. It's not pre-crisis times, <laughs> right? So now the times are a little different and to have that long-term success, you really need to have a strong foundation and have that trust factor. We have suppliers, we can take $50,000, $70,000 worth of goods out on the cuff without no contract, no nothing but a handshake and, mm -hmm. and pay them in a month because we've been working with for so long. They have exposure, but they're okay with it because they trust us and we have this kind of good working relationship. So you've generously offered to answer any listener questions at tropicalmba.com slash Canton. Cool. This conversation is super complex. Mm -hmm. And we've always had difficulty distilling these concepts on the show it's because it's a lot of work. Right. I mean, you walked me through these checklist items that we could literally go on for five and six hours. Like sure. you have to make sure that this business license thing matches up with this. It's on the bill of materials. It's on this. So if you have any specific questions, we'll address that at right. the blog for now. But I want to ask you to take a quick step back. You've okay. been in China for 10 years. Tell me about your city. Tell me about how Shenzhen has changed in the last five. And how has the whole sourcing game and manufacturing game changed in your view? Shenzhen is, is a very intense city, but it's amazing as well. I've traveled all over the world now and there's nothing really like it. Went from a fishing village of 300,000 people in 1980 to a thriving metropolis of 12 to 15 million people, depending on who you believe and what day it is, with a super advanced Subway system, great transportation, bullet trains, skyscrapers, millionaires all over the place. It really is the Chinese-American dream. I mean, I guess it depends on how you want to look at it. But <laughs> to get this lucky blessing from the government, it was an experiment in the 80s to see, will this work? People think that Shenzhen was picked because it's close to Hong Kong. But what I've heard the real story is, is it was the farthest city they could find from Beijing. So if anything went wrong, <laughs> they could be somebody else's problem and not theirs. Is it, so, you know, you know, is it a better time to get into the sourcing than it was five years ago? And how about moving to China and being an expat? It's definitely maturing as a city. When I first got there in 2004, 2005, it was still the tail end of the kind of gold rush, wild, wild west scene. And things were a little crazier, but people were making so much money. It didn't matter. And I kind of missed the tail end of that. I started my <laughs> business right after the crash, which is a disaster. But now you guys are, is it okay to say you're Yeah, we're doing okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you guys are doing good. Yeah. But what I think is interesting is that you're representative of a trend of young Western expats who've moved to China and who've, is it safe to say you've done better than you would if you would have stayed in the United States? I don't know what I would be doing if I stayed in the States. Yeah, I really have no idea. But yeah, I mean... I mean, you obviously would have been able to get any job you want or start a business, well, I mean, but it just I, seems yeah. like China is just on such an I mean, upswing. For, for me, I picked to move to China because I didn't feel confident with any skill set I had. I didn't like what my future looked like. I was young. I said, you know, screw it. I jumped on the first thing, move in to China. I was always fascinated by it. I studied the language. I was intrigued when I got to Asia, like everybody seems to be. But yeah, I mean, it's it's different for me. I hear these, your story and all these guys who had these 
successful jobs and were doing well and, and gave it up to do this. I never had something like that. I, I kind of just jumped into this feet first, not knowing what it was going to be. And then I saw sourcing for me was the easiest way to kind of leverage China into something that could be my own business. And, and for me, I never had that skill set or really a reason to be a business owner, but just that kind of the desire. And that's kind of what drove me through the first two and a half years, which were horrible. <laughs> but, uh, survived that and came out through the other side with a genuine good skill set and speak Chinese. been there for 10 years and very interested in, in staying. A lot of people talk about the manufacturing moving from China to other low-cost areas, Bangladesh or Vietnam or Thailand or something. But for me, I mean, the infrastructure that's built in China and the investments that China makes in its infrastructure, I think are going to be very hard to beat for at least the next 10, 15 years. So I the opportunity is still there. I think it, it definitely is still there. You know, again, I, I, you and I have said the same thing. We don't. China's not the cost option it's the sensible option right. it's like if, I don't know if you're, you're going to buy go. missiles you go to right. the united states right. if you want to buy iphones you go to china right their skill set in manufacturing is so polished there's so many people there and there's so much competition the lackadaisical enforcement of intellectual property has kind of led to this evening out of manufacturing right the guy who's super successful with something he's got 20 guys looking at him and saying well he's making more money than i am making these chopsticks i'm gonna start making what he's making so that drives down the pricing and kind of keeps that cost low for a lot of people and i think it's going to be the sourcing center for at least the next decade for sure i, I agree i think if you have a brand or an idea or say an audience where you feel like you could move a product into that audience i think that it's easier than ever to right. go to china because these suppliers are they're now they're used to dealing with non-corporate buyers, right, right. with people that are just rocking up with a kind of an idea, a small spec. Right. And now you're hitting the second, third generation of factory owners. Like a lot of these guys grew up wealthy. Their, their parents were made money and they were at least solid middle class. They've studied overseas. Right. You've got English speakers in the factories. They know what they're doing. They may know your pricing and your whole market. <laughs> sure, sure. So it's, it's more accessible than ever, but it's also more challenging than ever, I think, as well. And it kind of keeps evolving and changing so fast and constantly that you, know, you can, like you said, have that audience and have an idea for a physical product, show up to the Canton Fair, interview a ton of factories, find somebody who can make this product, who might even engineer the design for you and be physically manufacturing in two to three months. To end the show, so again, we'll be at tropicalmba.com slash Canton, and this is relevant for, I want to talk about the concept that you, Jamin, and Terry are working on. So all three of you guys, like, we respect what you guys have done so much. And we've been asking you for years, like, why don't you have meetups around the fair and right. help educate entrepreneurs and kind of make it like a gateway kind of experience? Or, you know, it could be for people that just want to go for the first time or guys like me that you know, I don't want to go to the Canton Fair alone. Right. You know? right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think so we tell me your concept here and what you guys are thinking about doing. We saw so many people struggle with this, that same thing where they have the resources and they have the audience and they want to go make something, but the language and the culture and all these things are still kind of intimidating. It's not the easiest country to, to go around. I mean, just to say, hey, go to Guangzhou for a month and figure out how to manufacture. I mean, where do you start? Yeah. So we kind of want to take Take all the lessons we've learned from 10 years. I moved to China when I was 24 and got my butt kicked a lot, you know, and, <laughs> and we learned a lot from these things. And now we're at the point where, you know, it, for us, it becomes a reaction or an instinct to kind of act in this way. I never really had a real job in the States. So I, quote unquote, became a man, you know, in Shenzhen with my business sense. And, and that's where I kind of sharpened my teeth. So I don't think that there's a lot of resources available to people like this. There's not a lot of guys who are 
34 and have a decade of experience on the ground in China. So what we kind of want to do is kind of start leveraging that, you know, for us to kind of keep playing this, the trading game or project management game. I mean, it's it's a difficult business to be in. We've learned a lot and we want to start trying to share this with a bigger group of people and show people, hey, you know, you can come with a concept. It is possible to just show up to China and, and figure this stuff out. Yes, the language is a challenge. Yes, the culture can be a barrier. But if you got that desire to make something, you can make any product you can dream up of. Somebody will, will manufacture it for you. And I think that this is kind of the great evening out and these kind of restrictions for businesses who are manufacturing these huge, crazy products and the complexity of the manufacturing was a preventative thing for a lot of people. Like that's not true anymore. Like you said, you can have that audience. You can come up with a product and you can go to China and find somebody who's, who'll manufacture 500 of them for you, you know, and help you ship them over to wherever you want in the world. And that's kind of possible now. And I think that that's a really cool and exciting, interesting way to kind of live life and, and do businesses. This ability to get around these barriers that used to make it so kind of inconceivable. Used to just be opaque. Right. At the time when Ian and I founded our business, we had a third partner just for the manufacturing side because it was inconceivable that we would go over and build our own infrastructure. Right. And, and now I honestly think a $2,000 plane ticket and some living expenses for a month, and I think you can get it done. Definitely, I, I agree. You know, and it's it's not the easiest thing either. And you may make some mistakes, you know, going through this. But you will, you will <laughs> make some mistakes. Yes, <laughs> but there is a basic guideline that you know you can follow and avoid a large chunk of these things. Um, we're trying to take these ten years of experience and getting our asses handed to ourselves, and try to boil this down into like this is just the basic best practices. This is what we do, and this is how we make our decisions of who we work with, and this is what we do when there's problems, and this how we try to solve them. Cool. So we'll have links on tropicalmba.com slash Canton. We'll have checklists for best practices. You're yep. going to post a couple of your checklists that you guys use internally. Uh, we're going to have a link to Matt's sourcing firm, highcappen.com, as well as the Canton Fair meetup, which is going to be called Running with China. Running with China. China Sourcing Bootcamp. Very cool. All right, Matt, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.